I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Welcome to this week's Democracy Sausage episode from the Australian National University in Canberra. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and we put this program out each week with the assistance of the Crawford School of Public Policy's PolicyForum.net, and specifically EP Angus Blackman, who doesn't get shouted out enough. So here's a sobering thought. More Australians are currently experiencing restrictions on their movement than at any time in this country's history, including World War II. Self-styled freedom warrior New South Wales Liberal Premier Gladys Berejiklian has been backtracking at a rate of knots in recent weeks, forced into a humiliating series of ever tighter lockdown rules, in some cases harder than those in Victoria last year, which, let's be clear, Berejiklian and her party depicted as unacceptable and unnecessary. That's not the way New South Wales does things, she skited, courting the approval of PM Scott Morrison. There was a degree of dog whistling in this, of course, because Morrison's gushing praise of New South Wales always carried just that little bit of anti-Victorian, anti-Dan Andrews sentiment. Doubtless last year's deadly Victorian outbreak came from unconscionable failures in government management in Victoria. But as I've said on this podcast before, the hard-nosed response to rid the state of any community transmission was probably the single most effective lever of public policy I've ever seen pulled. Now, New South Wales is dealing with its own outbreak, and a bleak Australian winter is delivering what we were long warned about, particularly given our desultory vaccination program. Luckily, in the UK, it's all good. Indeed, freedom is back. It's Freedom Day, which sounds cloyingly American and perhaps to many Britons equally as foreign. So let's get an update on what's going on in a country in which the self-declared Freedom Day is accompanied by the Prime Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Treasurer no less, and the Health Secretary are all in isolation as it takes place. What about the optics of that? 
So to discuss it all, let's welcome back to two Democracy Sausage favourites, Australians Abroad, Bevan Shields and Elizabeth Ames. Now, Elizabeth Ames is a former trade and diplomatic official who is now Chief Operating Officer at Atalanta. She's also Chair of the Menzies Australia Institute at King's College London and a Board Director of the Britain Australia Society. And she's got a dog called Walter. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. It's delightful to be back on the podcast. Uh, as you know, we just bought a house with a large garden for Walter. So I keep saying, you know, you spend a couple of thousand pounds on a dog and then you spend several <laughs> hundred thousand pounds on a house for the dog. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, Walter's going well. How old is Walter now? He turns one in a month and we are having uh, an engagement party, a housewarming and a Walter birthday party because we couldn't possibly have a celebration without including him. No, indeed. Well, I'm glad to get an update on Walter because I have seen pictures of him on uh, on social media and he's a he's an imposing figure, Churchillian almost. Let's move on to the, our other guest, Bevan Shields, is the European correspondent for my old papers, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and of course is the source of much excellent reporting, indeed really the font of most of our knowledge about what's going on in Britain and the continent at the moment. Welcome back, Bevan. Thanks, Mark. i got to say, you know, for those listening, uh, I appreciate both of you being there because, as I say, it is Freedom Day. It's in the afternoon that I'm talking to you, but it's uh, first thing in the morning your time. So very much appreciate both of you getting up early to talk to us on this Freedom Day morning. Um, Bevan, perhaps paint us a bit of a picture. As we speak, as I say, it is Freedom Day uh, in London where you are. Yesterday I saw at Silverstone the F1. There was something like 356,000 tickets sold to that event. It was a kind of a an experimental event or a, a model event uh, the UK government had, had approved. People could buy tickets, uh, attend without masks. They had to be either double vaccinated or uh, have a recent COVID test negative. But nonetheless, the event was uh, you know seemed extremely normal. There was even sunshine, which has perhaps not been so normal for the UK summer so far. <laughs> Nonetheless, we see extraordinary figures of uh, new infections and so forth. So, perhaps give us a sense of of what Freedom Day is. What are the restrictions that are being removed? It's basically eliminating the last set of restrictions that have been in place since the second lockdown was introduced over Christmas for that really devastating second wave. So restaurants and things like that have already been open for a good couple of months now. This is basically wiping away caps on venues, caps on weddings, funerals, nightclubs can reopen, theatres can reopen. Uh, They're doing away with the the one metre social distancing rule and probably most controversially, and I think we'll we'll probably talk about this, is, is not making masks mandatory anymore. Uh, So it's a funny vibe here, Mark, because summer has finally shown up here after a long uh, absence. And I think there's a mix. I I talked to a lot of people this weekend to try and sort of gauge the temperature of people. And I think there's a real mix between just sheer relief from a lot of people that perhaps this is this is close to over, uh, that might be pushing it a bit far, but certainly relief that, you know, things are getting a bit back to normal. And also a lot of people, there's a lot of trepidation about this and a lot of people who feel this is happening too too soon, too fast, and maybe a more cautious approach for a little longer would have been a good idea. Uh, Now, Boris Johnson's argument is, 
it's sort of now or never. If we don't release ourselves from these last restrictions now in summer, when you have the advantage of summer and school holidays and things like that, and you wait and do it over autumn or winter when the NHS is already under more pressure from what might end up being quite a bad flu season, um, you know, you're going to run into trouble, possibly worse trouble at the end of the year. So it's, it's, it's a strange time. I don't think there are many people running around the streets sort of waving flags and sort of saying, you know, freedom, freedom, uh, sort of Braveheart style, but it's, it, there are a lot of happy people. Uh, I was in Hyde Park on Saturday and it was just, <laughs> just, it's just something so basic as seeing people laughing and smiling and happy and with their friends and family and, you know, throwing the frisbee and it is a it, you sort of forget we've missed that for so long when you see it you sort of forget <laughs> how nice it is uh so yeah it's uh it's a real it's a real test tube uh situation here at the moment because because i mean this don't you think this is exactly where other countries are basically going to have to go themselves at some point that everyone is going to have to test the collision between you know, mass vaccination coverage, ending restrictions and a, a level of community transmission uh, that can't be stopped. And so they're giving it a go here and uh, I think a lot of people are definitely watching. Yeah, Elizabeth, I noticed that Bevan makes the point about mass vaccination levels and that's certainly one of the keys to this. This is essentially the, the government's main justification for me for being able to do this. Something like 88% of adult Britons have had a first shot and I think even more impressive, two-thirds or 67% have had both shots. Uh, this is overwhelmingly of AstraZeneca. But that's really the government's main justification, I suppose, for being able to do this, isn't it? They're, they're really coming up with this argument of saying we've got significant levels of vaccination now so we can do this and what we're really about here is severing the link between the virus and severe cases and mortality. Mark, I think that's entirely accurate. I would say I agree entirely with Bevan. We do need to learn to live with this disease and you know, Australia is getting a crash course at the moment, unfortunately, in what living with the disease looks like if you don't have an adequate vaccination rollout. But most countries would be looking to release restrictions at a point at which cases were not as high as they are here in the UK at the moment. So case numbers in the UK are back up where they were in sort of January, February, at the peak of the second wave, which, as we know, was so devastating for the British economy, for British people who were locked down, again, really severely, and also for the NHS that really struggled to to manage that level of caseload and so pushed everyone else out of the hospitals. And we now have this huge waiting list of people who didn't get other routine treatment but what is fascinating looking at the figures is how low the daily death numbers remain and how slowly the hospitalisation rates have been rising. So at the start of this pandemic, you know, I think Bevan and I talked to you very early on in the, the very first wave and we didn't know what to expect. The idea was if we had a vaccine that would help stop people going to hospital and stop people dying, that would be the end of the pandemic. And that's effectively what we have. You know, people are not dying People are not going to hospital despite the strength of this wave, despite the numbers. And so the question is then, and as Bevan says, the rest of the world is watching the UK to see what happens here. When you lift all restrictions, you have quite widespread community transmission. What does that look like? Does it become something more like a regular cold and flu? 
and we stop getting daily case numbers and we stop thinking about it and we think just about numbers of people in hospital and number of deaths overall? Or are we about to see some sort of mass vaccination breakthrough event where the virus does jump through the vaccine protection, particularly one of the new variants, say the South African one, which looks like it is more virulent and isn't uh, isn't as well protected against by the existing vaccines. And at that point, is the UK the poster child for being a little bit too gung-ho on Freedom Day when we probably should have held off another couple of months until there were booster shots, until we knew more what the virus was evolving to be next? Yeah, I think this is the real risk here. As you say, the UK could be a poster child for, for success and life after kind of COVID lockdown land, you know, the lockdown being the principal uh, defence against the the pandemic when you're dealing with it in the way that countries have had to deal with it, but but now going beyond that with high levels of vaccination and if it works, then I guess that's what the UK is going to be able to demonstrate. But it'd be wrong to say there's universal agreement on this, wouldn't it? I mean, there are plenty of people, uh, epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts, and people on the front lines in hospitals who are worried about being overwhelmed. Even the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, who you know stands up alongside Boris Johnson, is is as much of a familiar figure in in the UK as the Australian uh, chief medical officers and the state's chief medical officers have been in Australia. Chris Whitty is now sort of saying, "Well, we should do it now because there is no other time, but also everyone should be very responsible and don't take it too far." And I will be wearing my mask, and I wouldn't go to a nightclub. Although, to be frank, the idea of Chris Whitty, who is a sort of very <laughs> nerdy looking guy in his 60s at a nightclub is is something pretty funny in and of itself. So there is a sense as well, and I'd be interested in Bevan's thoughts on this, uh, that the government is now trying to push responsibility back onto people. You know, it is a conservative government. They do tend to like people to be making their own decisions and not to have government by diktat and government by, you know, sort of decision making in parliament. And they want people to be taking on the risk themselves. And if you haven't been vaccinated, well, then that be- at a certain point, that becomes your problem rather than the government and the rest of society's problem. But it feels like it's quite a dangerous time to be doing that, given the, the case numbers. Yeah, I think I think that's true. The, the other thing that's not discussed often is, you know, when people say you get, you're being released from restrictions, that doesn't mean people have been complying with the restrictions. And I think mask wearing has been quite good, but compliance has been on the way in here for a very long time. So people are being released, but, you know, they're going into behaviour that they're, they're doing anyway. Um, the, 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 Mark, the interesting thing about the case numbers thing is I'll just give you a really just a simple couple of stats. Between the start of February and June 21, which is sort of the, the best, best uh, figures we've got, no, about 92,000 people in England contracted the Delta variant now, only 7.8% of those cases were people who had been double vaccinated. And of those 92,000 cases, about 1,300 people ended up in hospital and only 190 of those people had been double vaccinated. So I think what the big difference that a lot of my friends and family in Australia have got their head around here is that there's yes, case numbers are bad. They might even get up to a hundred thousand a day, possibly even more. But it's sort of almost—I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it, it, it case numbers aren't as significant as they used to be. They're not the benchmark of success or failure here at the moment. It's all these other things like 
hospitalization and the economy. And to be honest, you know, like kind of putting this sort of broken society back together after lockdowns. Uh, and it'll be it, the personal responsibility thing will be really interesting. And the, and the big test of that will be masks because the government is saying, okay, they're not mandatory, but we would like you to wear them. And the thing with masks is that masks are sort of more effective in stopping you from giving COVID to someone else rather than you getting it. So there is actually sort of, it's, it's not even a personal responsibility factor there. It's more a kind of possibly a moral responsibility if you're on a packed train. I, I, if I'm on the tube and it's packed, I'll be wearing a mask, not because I'm particularly worried about getting COVID again, because I do feel for all those people who will be on the tube and feel a bit anxious about this. But, yeah, it's and this is also Boris's – I think we now know from those very early days of the pandemic, we now know that Boris really struggled against the idea of a lockdown that went against his libertarian instincts. And I think we're, now, now we're seeing this is true Boris now, exactly as Elizabeth said. It's sort of about a focus on personal – responsibility and choices rather than the intervention of the state. A couple of questions there. One about masks. Do, do masks carry anything like the kind of political, you know, symbolism that they've been attributed in in the in the US? And and also do you both acknowledge that not notwithstanding the, the, the observations you've made, that if it goes badly, then this has a very dire – it becomes a very dire warning for the world as, as well. Like at that point, countries like Australia or countries that are in that pre-release stage uh, will uh, will take the view. Like say the UK hospital system does get overwhelmed as some on the front line are worried that could happen uh, and it's certainly happening in other countries anyway like Indonesia where the hospital system is basically overwhelmed most of the time anyway – if that happens in the UK, then it's going to be a very kind of salutary lesson for for everyone to manage the infection situation to zero, which seems to be the public policy aim in Australia all the time. It is a real it is a real worry that sense that if we don't get this right, and if the lesson that's taken from this is that you need to be in lockdown forever, that there are some countries, Australia included, that will relish that lesson and, and you know, the public polling in Australia suggests that the Australian population are overwhelmingly in favour of keeping borders closed and hard lockdowns and eliminating the virus. So that is a big concern for me. The mask thing is interesting. I would say there's nowhere near the, the politicisation of masks here that there has been in the US. There have been a few reasonably right-wing uh, MPs and commentators who've tried to turn it into a political gesture and a political statement. But in general, all of the MPs, you see them wearing them, whether or not they wear them as well as they could uh, is another question, <laughs> but you see them wearing them. You know, we've seen we've seen the Queen in a face mask, which is, you know, the Queen exists, as she's often said, to, to be seen. And so I think sort of wearing a face mask and covering herself up was probably anathema to her as well. And we've seen images of her in a face mask out and about. So there is Are a sense sure that her? everyone's... Well, she's she's otherwise reasonably distinctive, but you know, they, they may have a body double in the basement at Windsor Castle. I haven't been to check lately. They get another ten years out of her if they if they operate like that, Fidel Castro style. They don't have that significance. Although I would say it's interesting seeing where the boundaries of that lie. Like Bevan, I will continue to wear a face mask in in crowded spaces, and you know, the tube. Is a, is a great example. I actually feel much more comfortable in the tube wearing a face mask just because the tube is such a disgusting hotbed of germs 
even when there's not a pandemic. But sitting on the tube, seeing who isn't wearing a face mask already is very interesting. And a lot of them are sort of younger people who are not wearing face masks, sometimes, you know, because it looks like they don't want to mess up their makeup, sometimes because it doesn't look cool, or they've got one around their wrist, which they'll put on if they get told off, but they won't wear it otherwise. And you do wonder, there are lots of people now who are claiming exemptions from wearing a face mask. And really, the only reason you mightn't be able to wear a face mask is if you've got really severe emphysema and are struggling to breathe. But to be frank, if you've got emphysema that badly, you probably shouldn't be leaving the house in the middle of a respiratory pandemic anyway. So I suspect there'll be more people self-claiming exemptions and and not wanting to wear them as well in those kind of spaces, which, as uh, Bevan says, is much more of a threat to others than to themselves. I mean, on the question of if it doesn't, you know, what happens if it doesn't work? I mean, I would, I'm not endorsing this at all, but I would just, I would just question if it can't work here, where can it work? If it can't work in a country where, uh, I mean, because this, this, this spike will run out of puff at some point, probably in August, maybe early September. There's not going to be a hundred thousand cases a day forever. This will this will sort of fizz a little bit at some point. So if it can't work in a country where you have nearly nine nine out of ten adults given one dose and two thirds a second, and basically anyone who's over fifty, more than about ninety five percent of people in those age groups have had their full two doses. Where where can it work? And and again, I I just think I just keep coming back to. It sounds calculating and cold and and brutal, but when you do look at the death numbers, which I think people are increasingly focused on here, they're staying low. In fact, they're 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 lower than more people have been dying here, despite this new wave over the past couple of months from flu from influenza and pneumonia than they have COVID-19. So I just, I don't know, I just feel like there's a big shift has happened here about people's understanding of, you know, what is an acceptable, terrible term, but what is an acceptable number of deaths and hospitalizations that society can live with if the trade-off is things stay open and we don't go back into lockdown. Can we just take a quick break there and we'll come back in just a moment. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, I sort of rudely cut you off there, Elizabeth. I think you were about to make a comment about uh, vaccination and perhaps school children. Yes, I think that will be the next big discussion here. We now know 
that the majority of the virus spreading was when the schools reopened and then children are seeding it back into family homes and, and back into particularly in those sort of multi-generational households, which we know from devastating waves in Australia as well at the most at risk. So there is a really live discussion here about whether or not we should be vaccinating 12 to 18-year-olds. My personal view is they've done it very successfully in Israel and the US and it makes no sense to me that we haven't extended the vaccination program to children, particularly given we were right at the end of the summer term. So we could have gone through and done all the 12 to 18 year olds in school for their first dose and given them a second dose when they came back from the summer holidays. For some reason, the Joint Committee on on Vaccinations is sitting on that advice and isn't sort of stepping up. And it's not like it is in Australia. There isn't a a lack of vaccines here. There's actually a now you're only seeing 50,000 people or so a day getting their first dose. So we have a glut of things like the Pfizer vaccine, which is what would be used. So I think the next step will be how do you get to that point of mass immunity because we're getting there with the adult population both through vaccinations and through natural infection. But it's unconscionable to me that we are saying we'll have a summer where it will just rip through children and we don't know what the consequences of all of them having COVID are longer term when we have a vaccine that's been approved for use in that age group and we know is effective. But isn't it unconscionable? I mean, this is such an interesting debate here. It's it's more charged than the mask debate. Isn't it unconscionable for advanced economies to be vaccinating children who, so far we know, are at the least risk of this thing, while there are countries around the world, developing countries, that are desperate for supply, desperately need supply for elderly people, people at risk, and that supply is going to children in advanced economies? I think think that is completely wrong. And actually, Sarah Gilbert, Dame Sarah Gilbert, who basically created the Oxford vaccine and was the, Mark, your listeners probably remember, was the scientist who had the standing ovation uh, at Wimbledon, um, said yesterday, this shouldn't happen. This shouldn't happen. We should be distributing vaccines around the world before we think about vaccinating children. And, you know, the UK has domestic production capacity here. It should be sending as much of this stuff overseas as possible, if only, if not for the moral imperative, if only to stop uh, potential other variants emerging elsewhere that become a problem down the track. Do you think that this is broadly understood, that last point you make, uh, Bevan, about uh, var- you know other variants emerging, is it widely understood, do you think, by people that um, that is the process that viruses go through, that they have to replicate, they there's the potential for mutations. Some of those mutations can uh, accidentally or however you want to describe it uh, result in the emergence of new variants that are more resistant potentially to vaccinations that exist. Um, and therefore, that's why you need to make sure you don't have it running rampant through populations, not just for the, uh, you know, for the, um, the, the illness and mortality that it creates, but because it allows the virus to live on and mutate? I think there's a sense that probably, and, and I agree, Bevan, entirely with you that we should be vaccinating people around the world, that you know, the UK having cut its aid budget has a moral imperative to contribute to the kind of global good uh, in whatever way it can, and this is a really obvious way in which it could be doing so, although I don't think that is the way sadly, that the domestic debate here is going to go. And I think you will see children here vaccinated before we see the UK shipping large amounts of vaccine to other countries. I think there isn't enough understanding of that um, 
sort of epidemiological pressure. There was a great graph, I think it was in the Times over the weekend, which showed the way in which viruses mutate and it sort of starts off and it is a real parabola, you know, it goes up, straight up and basically straight down. And we're at the point now at which the virus will mutate the fastest it can because it's encountering so much natural resistance. And so we're actually at the point at which the most it's most likely that these dangerous variants emerge mm. as we saw in India. And then actually as you get natural um immunity or you get immunity from vaccines, the virus finds fewer and fewer people it can infect. And so it does then come down. But we are globally at this point where we're sort of right up the top of this this parabola in terms of those variants. I'm not sure that the population understand that. And I think there is a sense in the UK, which now has red list countries where you have to quarantine in a hotel like you do in Australia, as there is in Australia, that countries that don't have enough vaccine and where the, the virus is running rampant well, we just won't visit those countries and we just won't let them into our country. And that is not the appropriate response to this. As Bevan says, the appropriate response is making sure that everyone has enough vaccine and that that vaccine is distributed globally and stops those variants emerging. But in fact, what you will see, I think, is mass vaccination in rich countries and closing the border to countries that haven't been properly vaccinated. I was asked on a radio interview I did just a couple of hours ago by a young journalist and it was talking about the situation in Britain and making comparisons with Australia what is the cultural difference between the two countries where we have this mentality in Australia where we have to try and manage this to uh, to zero, to zero community infections, and uh, you have a situation where I think yesterday, for example, in the UK, we've been talking about significant numbers of infections, and I acknowledge the difference between infections and hospitalizations and deaths and so forth, but nonetheless, I think it was 49,000 new infections in the UK yesterday. We've got a lockdown in New South Wales with with 98 announced today. That's the sort of number it's been at for the last seven or eight days. But you've effectively got, you know, the, the country's largest city locked down and significant areas of it, you know, almost cordoned off. Mm. I struggled in a way to answer this question, what was the difference? I mean, the best I could come up with was that I think the expectations are different because we, we, we find ourselves in completely different places. Uh, we have successfully got to zero community transmission of this virus as as we did at the end of the Victorian lockdown and you know obviously it's got away from us again but it's it's still in globally in terms of global comparison still at very low numbers but there's an expectation here in Australia that we have to get back to zero there isn't that expectation yeah. there what what's the explanation for that I mean, I, I think ultimately it comes down that Australia is a victim of its own success in a way because it, that that success is defined in Australia as zero cases and that's the political imperative and, and narrative in Australia and that just doesn't exist here. So I think people here basically know that we're stuck with it. This thing is going to be around forever in some form Um and I and I and I still I still just am not convinced that there are a lot of people in Australia who recognise that just yet. And to to be honest, Mark, I have to say I the, <laughs> the thing that is just getting at me the most in this whole thing in the difference between the two countries is this country has given itself a big wall of protection, as Boris Johnson would say, through the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the media has been responsible here. Politicians have been responsible here. The regulators, the various health bodies have been really responsible here about AstraZeneca. People believe in it. People have confidence in it. 
this is a vaccine that's helped businesses reopen and workers get back to work and families get back together, all that sort of stuff. And in Australia, it has just been comprehensively trashed by people in positions of leadership who should know better. And and I, honestly, I actually think the the attitude to vaccine now is actually, to me, the biggest sort of point of difference between the sort of culture in, in the UK and Australia at the moment, even more so than, you know, the, the different approaches in whether you suppress or, you know, knock, try and knock this thing out. Um, and honestly, I just, I just look at what has happened in Australia to AstraZeneca and I, I just shake my head and I think in time when the dust settles on all this, people will look back at that and think that and, and realise that that was a really shameful episode. Mark Mark knows this is something I feel very strongly about because I sometimes WhatsApp him with complaints about things that have been said on his podcast or things that are being said in the Australian media uh, about AstraZeneca. Uh, you know, I've had two doses of AZ. It is proving unbelievably effective. And there's some interesting studies now coming out of Israel that seem to suggest that immunity from the mRNA vaccine wanes more quickly over time than that of the AZ vaccine. And so I think the best solution actually globally is probably some sort of mix and match where if you have two AZ, you then get a Pfizer booster at some point and vice versa. If you have two Pfizer, you have an AZ booster at some point. And so I agree entirely with Bevan. The Australian uh, narrative around AstraZeneca has been completely appalling. You know, Front page reporting it every time someone dies of a blood clot, which is two people, as opposed to front page reporting every time someone dies of a blood clot caused by anything else it's just uh, insane watching it from the UK, to be honest. And I really hope that we're able to open and keep our rates low and keep our death rates low because that is the best proof of the efficacy of the AZ vaccine, which, as we know, is able to be transported internationally much more easily. It's able to be given much more easily. It doesn't require the fiddly storage and cold chain um, supply chains that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines require. And more to the point... It was developed with government support so that it could be sold at cost to the rest of the world, which is something that the other vaccines weren't. And I cannot understand how a company that has behaved so responsibly in this in this pandemic and is really sort of focused on the global good has been tarred so badly um, as a company that deliberately developed a vaccine that wasn't, you know, effective and that isn't, you know, is causing deaths worldwide. It's really appalling to me that, that that's happened to AstraZeneca when they've been probably the most responsible global corporate player in the whole world during the vaccine. Mark, you look less pandemic. convinced You look less convinced than Elizabeth and I uh, on this one, I've got to say. I know. I, I actually agree. I, I, I was about to say uh, brilliantly said, actually. I thought, yes, that's a very persuasive argument. And uh, it, it, I was thinking about who, uh, you know, who are the sort of culprits in this. And obviously mm. there's been a fair bit of politics around it because um, – the the critic a lot of the criticism of AstraZeneca has has been really using it as a vehicle for attacking the failings of the government in terms of its uh, yes. vaccination program. So the government um, AstraZeneca is the workhorse of the Australian vaccination program at least to date. As of uh, this week, we're told we're getting a million doses of Pfizer a week, and you know, and it ramps up and so forth. But the government's been under a lot of pressure about that, and uh, anything that has uh, you know been able to show that AstraZeneca is uh, not up to the mark and and that it's been relied on unwisely by the government has been useful for people wanting to criticise the government. Mm. I don't blame 
the public in this because, you know, people have been fed this stuff, as I say, by people who should know better, politicians, former politicians, the media, and, and unfortunately some sort of you know, epidemiologists and health experts who really should know better. Yeah, and chief medical officers. Well, I mean, yeah. that said, uh, the, the, it's not the only problem that Australia has or the only uh, element of Australia's positioning which is dramatically different from other countries. And uh, I think you've both acknowledged that there is a, uh, a strong public sentiment of, um, of keeping the joint, support for keeping the joint shut, um, which uh, for Australians abroad, such as yourselves with family back here, uh, is uh, is is extremely worrying, and uh, uh, that's also uh, an element here. We've had governments effectively following that that public lead, in a sense. Uh, you know, uh, when I saw the federal budget announcement that the borders wouldn't reopen at the earliest until July next year, I was actually in an office with with my team at Atalanta launching the global media report for um, something called the Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness and Response, which was this global panel chaired by Helen Clark, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, and um, Ellen Sirleaf, who, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the former president of Liberia. And it was all about how we had responded to the pandemic and what we should do to prevent the next pandemic. And so I was in an office working on this amazing report with these fantastic recommendations to the world for how we should prevent another pandemic. And here's Australia saying, that I won't be able to see my family and friends for another 12 months. And I burst into tears in the middle of, in the middle of the office because I was so upset. And I, I will do, I will almost certainly try and get back at some point this year to see my family and, and do the quarantine. And I have no objections to doing the quarantine, although I do think for double vaccinated people, home quarantine is a much more sensible solution and would help ease the pressure on the caps. But the idea that you can just cut off any citizen who is overseas and that my citizenship is somehow worthless because I've chosen to make a life overseas and a life, I would add, that has spent a lot of time focused on promoting Australia abroad and extolling the virtues of the country that I love so much to be told that my citizenship isn't worth as much as the citizenship of those people who are currently resident in Australia is really heartbreaking. Devin? Well, I can't top that. That was uh, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, oh, I can... I can I completely agree. Uh, I think when you look at this is my observation anyway, and I'm conscious of you know people go oh well, you know you're in the UK, but from the outside looking in, I think there actually has been a shift in the public mood in Australia on things like lockdowns and vaccinations. I think you know people are probably starting to understand they need to to get moving on vaccines a lot more, and that the, the rollout is a shambles, and also maybe starting to question whether, you know, big citywide lockdowns for a few cases is the way to go until you get, you know, everyone vaccinated. What I don't think is changing, if anything is going backwards, I think, is the is the border issue. I think I think it's hugely popular and I really can't see that regime changing before the election and including home quarantine or some level of different quarantine approach for double vaccinated people, because the truth is even double vaccinated people, there will be cases from those people because the, the vaccines are not a hundred percent effective in producing, in stopping transmission. So until the government is, is honest with people about that, I can't see that changing. Certainly Mark, not, not this side of an election, whenever that, that might be. Funnily enough, I think I'd 
probably I sort of broadly agree with what you're saying, but I think I'd say one of the lessons that's been learned here in recent weeks, and I referred to this a little bit in my introduction, uh, is that lockdowns need to, if they're going to happen at all, they need to happen early. So yep. in some ways, uh, it's not just the borders that there's no great sign of uh, of opening up internet, you know, the international border in particular, uh, but it's mm. also that that even the single government that's probably been the most resistant to uh, instituting restrictions on movement and and a whole lot of other uh, elements of uh, of pandemic control, that government being New South Wales has had a lesson in what happens when you delay. And uh, I think that even that is probably going to uh, see more of a hair trigger in the future by by that government, by other states as well. So, yeah, it's yes, it's, it's a it's a, a difficult one to read, but I don't think the situation in Australia looks like it's um, open to any dramatic UK style change in the um, in the immediate future. Uh, as you say, probably not between now and the election, because that is the other big dynamic in this place. Let's just uh, while we can though uh, go back to the situation in the UK and particularly the political situation because. I think you made the point, Bevan, on Twitter that it's interesting seeing these three ministers in in self isolation, you know, on the same day that uh, that, that you know that freedom is supposedly <laughs> upon us. Um, what was funny about it, I think, and this has just been so much of a feature of not just uh, kind of you know political shenanigans, but policy decisions as well, right through this COVID period, has been the extent to which policies and announcements can change and can change quite quickly. So initially, um, uh, Sajiv Javid, the health minister or the health secretary, uh, announces that he's um, he's tested positive for the virus. That means that people who've been in his close orbit uh, also need to uh, uh, check their situation and go into, uh, you know, take, take measures. Uh, two of those are the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Boris Johnson and, and Rishi Sunak. Now, these two ministers basically, uh, I think perhaps even three of them, certainly those two ministers initially took the view that they could be part of this new experimental arrangement for, I think, about 20 workplaces where they would continue working but uh, but be tested and, and contact traced. That lasted about three hours before... They had to come out and say, uh, look, all right, because there was, what, a public backlash of people saying, hang on, oh. you can't have some rules for some and some rules, you know, different rules for others. It, and, I mean, it, there was a huge backlash in that three hours. If they had let it, if they actually had stuck to this and let it run, I, I think it could have almost been fatal for, for Boris. I, I, I really mean that because it was people are sick to death of this whole one rule for them and us thing yeah. and it just completely shreds any compliance or confidence in any other, you know, measures that the government's asking people to uh, to adhere to. I, I thought it was, I thought it was like, you know, Tony Abbott's knighting Prince Philip moment potentially. It's just one of those decisions that is just so toxic and dumb and stupid, and everyone talks about it at the pub or you know the water cooler at the uh, socially distanced office and. Uh, uh, they they backtracked quick smart, but I mean it does give you a bit of an insight, doesn't it? I mean they've backtracked, but their initial their initial response was to exempt themselves from the <laughs> same rules that they're they're asking everyone else to comply with. And the the background to that mark is 
hundreds of thousands of people each week here are being pinged by the NHS app for being close contacts and told they have to self-isolate. It's actually becoming a really, actually, it's becoming a real issue for the economy, actually. Mm. And mm. there's a lot of pressure on the government about whether the app is too sensitive or they need to be a bit, then it's to ease that off a bit. And then you have the Prime Minister and the, the Chancellor saying we're, uh, oh, no, of course that's not going to apply to us of course not no it's it was it was it was insane but yeah they uh they they pulled out of it quick smart that's the way the whole uh system's going to work isn't it elizabeth that uh that this whole idea of releasing is going to be premised on the idea that if you are a contact to someone who's got the virus that you undertake this self-isolation 10 days i think rather than 14 which is interesting in itself but it does have the potential for Real danger to the economy, ongoing danger to the economy. If you've got significant outbreak, you're going to have a significant number of people. As Bevan said, hundreds of thousands potentially of people who may be having to self-isolate. That may mean businesses don't have enough staff to operate. You know, this is not going. This potentially is not going to be easy. I mean, we're already seeing the consequences of uh, what has been called here, Mark, the ping demic, uh, because you get pinged by the app. So. There are front page uh, headlines. You know, the Daily Mail, which is not a uh, left leaning newspaper, is going in hard against the government on this. You know, t- this morning's headline was "When will this madness end?" So the idea that you have to isolate for ten days, even if you've been double vaccinated, um, and the impact that that's having on the economy, you're already seeing staff shortages in the UK as a consequence both of the pandemic and also as a consequence of Brexit and the inability of young Europeans to come over and work in you know restaurants and, and pubs and bars and, and shops. And the chief executive of John Lewis, which is a bit like Maya here, it's one of the, you know, it's the big department store that famously um, Carrie now Johnson, the wife of the Prime Minister, hated their furniture so much that she had to go and spend, you know, sixty thousand pounds on a on a new flat decoration. Quite like John Lewis. If anyone ever wants to give me a voucher, I'd be very happy. But the chair of John Lewis came out and said, for every one staff member that tests positive, three more are having to isolate and I'm going to have to close shops in the next month if we don't stop having this this policy, if we don't stop people who've been double vaccinated having to isolate for 10 days. So the impact on the economy, particularly if we get up to that 100,000 daily cases, and if you think you know each case has 10, 10 close contacts, which is a very small analysis of, of the way in which contact tracing might work, Suddenly, you've got a million people having to um, having to isolate every single day. Seven million people a week—that's a tenth of the UK population in isolation at any one time. That's just not going to be feasible. And how are these people being identified? Is it is is this a, a UK version of Australia's rather uncelebrated COVID Safe app, or is it uh, as a result of contact tracing when people test positive? It's primarily the app. So the UK, like Australia, or certainly like Victoria did, you know, went with the outtrace, the outsource model for, for contact tracing early on, and the test and trace system has been a debacle from start to finish. So instead we have this app which is called NHS COVID-19, and you have to use it to, to scan in, like you do in Australia, scan in at a venue with a um, a QR code but it also is running in the background. So if you're close to someone who tests positive, it will tell you you need to isolate. And there are cases of people whose neighbours test positive being pinged through the wall because they spend too much time close to this person who's positive, even if obviously they don't actually have any physical crossover with them. So that's working off Bluetooth, is it? Yeah, it runs in the background on Bluetooth. And you're having a lot of people now saying, well, stuff it, I'm going to delete the app because it's Freedom Day. I don't need to check in anywhere. I don't need to prove my 
my status. And in fact, I can't risk a ping because I'm finally back in the office or I finally planned my wedding and I can't be, I can't afford to be in self-isolation for that, you know, for the fourth time that I've tried to have a wedding. So I think that that, that app is going, going to go down the drain pretty quickly if, if the, uh, the pings continue and the isolation continues. It's a very uncertain world that we live in and one where uh, changes happen hourly as much as they do weekly and daily and uh, so we'll just have to see where it uh, where it goes from here it's going to be fascinating and hopefully not disturbing to watch how the UK experiment <laughs> goes and maybe uh, maybe point the way forward for a world after the pandemic a world that at least in some ways resembles the one that existed beforehand Thanks, uh, both of you, for uh, getting up so early and being so chirpy and jolly at this stage of the day. It's a bit later for me, but I uh, really appreciate that you've both done that. Good to talk. Might be back back to bed now. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yes, I think I've levelled up my caffeine uh, dosage over the course of the podcast. I'm probably much chirpier now than I was at the beginning. Uh, thanks again. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. I uh, look forward to talking to you again uh, next week. Until then, bye for now. 